0: If you have a Bible, you can turn it open to Hebrews 12. It's on page 1009, the passage Kurt read for us. And let me pray, and then we'll consider God's Word together. Our Father, we thank you for this time where you have assembled these men and women, brothers and sisters, to me and to one another together. We thank you that you have given to us the Word, that we might not be in the dark about who you are and your ways and how we might come to you, but you have revealed yourself to us. You have entered our space and time and spoken Your Word and even lived the Word as Jesus Christ among us, that we might know You. We might not be reaching out into the dark, but we have seen You and touched You and behold You. And we thank You that in Your Word, You have given us all that we need for life and faith. And we pray that You would help us to be humble as we come to Your Word today. I pray especially for grace from You that you would arrest the thoughts and the minds of every man and woman here and you would center them and fix them upon your word. I pray that even as we wade through some thick material that you would help us to stay on track and, and to be attentive and focused and that you might even do a work of transforming us through your word. We pray that we would be encouraged and admonished and instructed and corrected and rebuked and that you would do in our hearts All that the Spirit sees fit to do, and that it would point us to Jesus. And it's for His glory and in His name that we pray. Amen. Okay, here's the question I want to start with Why are you here? Why are you here? And I don't mean that question to sound as obnoxious or offensive as it can. I'm not asking you, why are you here? I'm asking you honestly, why are you here? What have you gathered for? What do we, week in and week out, gather together for? And why have you personally joined this gathering? What are you hoping happens here? What are you expecting to accomplish by your time together here? What are you hoping to give or gain or receive by coming together here? What is the purpose of you gathering here? Why are you here? See, for many of you, in a given year, you will spend hundreds of hours of your life, hundreds of thousands of precious moments of your life here in this assembly for two hours every Sunday. And so over the course of a year and over the course of a lifetime, that adds up to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of hours and moments of your life. Moments that I don't need to remind you, you could spend in lots of different places. With the busyness of your schedules, the things that are on your plate, you know that these precious moments could be engaged in lots of different ways. You could be sleeping in. You could be shopping. You could be catching up on chores. You could be doing homework. You could be getting caught up on the things so that on Monday you have a head start. You could be lots, doing lots of different things. So then my question is, why are you here? If you're going to be investing so many hours and moments of your life in this assembly, gathered every week with us, it would behoove us to at least answer the question, why do we do this? Why do we come together? Why do we gather here and you might answer that question in a bunch of different ways you might answer it practically you might answer it honestly right so maybe our younger folks are here because mom and dad dragged them to be here and maybe some of you that are older are here because when you were young mom and dad dragged you to church and so church became what you did on Sundays it just became a part of the rhythm of your lives and so you're here because that's what you've always done Some of you, if you're honest, you'll say that you know you've got to be here to check off the box of the religious thing that you did once a week because you've got to keep God happy, right? Sort of like an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Uh, Church once a week will keep the Almighty asleep. So hopefully he won't (laughs) notice you. You'll fly under the radar. You don't want to do anything to catch his attention. And hopefully you don't want to rouse him up. You want to just do what needs to be done to not be noticed. So that you and him are good, and so you check off the box, you've sort of gone to church. Maybe you're here because someone invited you, and you're honestly just checking out Jesus and Christianity and religion. Maybe you're here because the girl you like goes to church, and you like her, you're not sure that you love church yet, but you're here, right? (coughs) What are you here for? So I'm, I'm asking you again honestly, why are you here? In a book called The Lord's Service, this author named Jeffrey Myers, he gives some more thoughtful answers, maybe some more theological answers that some of you maybe are sort of working in your mind about why are you here. And, and I want to give you four of these answers, but I want to show you that each of them are incomplete. They're not entirely wrong, hear me say that, but they're not entirely right either, right? I want to walk you through some of the examples or some of the answers you might offer. So, for example, some might say the purpose of corporate worship of our gathering, our assembly, is worship as evangelism, right? So some churches have aligned aligned the entire thing of what happens on a Sunday morning for the purpose, for the sake of evangelism. The idea that there will be non-Christians or people who don't yet know the Lord, don't know Jesus, who come and gather in our assembly, and so everything that we do, we do for their sake. We do for them, in the hope that they might come to know Jesus through our gathered assembly. If you know of certain churches, uh, usually termed in the seeker churches or seeker-sensitive churches, these are churches caught up in a movement that says the purpose of our gathered assembly is for the sake of evangelism, that, that people who don't know the Lord might come to know the Lord. Now with all these things, I need you to hear there's an element of truth to that. Right? So here at Seven Mile Road, we get that our worship should have a missional flavor to it. And what we mean by that is, even in the scriptures, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to write to a local church called Corinth. And he's going to tell them, when you gather for worship, don't just do whatever you think you can do, whatever makes you happy. Do things that you know will be sensible, even if someone who doesn't know the Lord should come into your midst. Right? Right? So when you come to gathered corporate worship, you want to be mindful that someone who doesn't know the Lord is, is in your midst, and you want to make sure that the service is sensible to them. So there's an element in which even a non-Christian should impact what we do here. If you don't know Jesus, if you're sort of checking it out, we hope that this is a place where you come to this service and you can at least follow along without being completely lost. So Paul's going to say that should impact the way you worship. So if your style of worship is to bark like a dog and roll around on the floor and and shout, that makes you happy, Paul would say, do it at home. Because when you come here, the unbeliever who's going to come into our midst should not look at us and go, these people are out of their mind, right? They should be able to engage. They should be able to uh, follow along. And so you're mindful of those around you. But having said that, In the scriptures, worship does not equal mission. Worship does not equal evangelism. That in one sense, you might say that the church gathers for worship and the church scatters for mission. So at the end of each service, we even say to you, we've assembled for worship and now we're going to be scattered on mission. So that when we come together, we come for worship and worship is different than evangelism. It's not. Evangelism is not the ultimate, sole, primary purpose of our worship. Some of you would say, I know, and I don't like the seeker-sensitive churches. I don't like how they do those things. Worship is for education. Right? So if you come in with that mindset, how many of us would say that often we've said we come to church so that we might learn more about God. Right? We might know more about God. And when you're in that mindset, everything that you do in the service is sort of just pre-game warming you up for the main event which is right now, the sermon. The sermon is what the service is all about. And so everything else is just getting you ready for education, for the sermon, for preaching. When you're in that sort of mindset, the songs that we sing in the beginning, the, the call to worship, confession, all of that is just sort of tugging at your heartstrings, getting you emotionally ready so that you can engage the word, and everything we do after the sermon is sort of just letting you blow off steam, letting you sing in response to what you really come for, which is the word. And so in this mindset, we would say, the sermon is the center. And again, I want you to hear at Seven Mile Road, we've got a deep conviction that the scriptures are paramount and primary. And so we take preaching really seriously. We're hoping that the way that we teach is biblical and faithful and courageous and true and that we have strong pulpits and strong preaching at Seven Mile Road and in its services. But even last week, we said that the purpose of Christianity is not to flood your head with more and more information because transformation trumps information. And honestly, if our corporate worship was just to get you to know more about God, couldn't you do that at home? You have more access to information, biblical information, sitting at home than you do here. You have access to the best preachers, the best teachers, the best sermons the world has to offer right at your fingertips. If all of this is to simply know God better, you could do that even apart from gathering here with us. So while education and instruction will be a huge part of worship, you don't come here primarily, ultimately, solely for the purpose of education. All right, so it's not evangelism, it's not education. Some would say it's because worship is an experience. You experience God, right? And so the the merit of a worship service, of a corporate gathering, the the way that you measure it is, how did you feel and what did you experience? Did you experience the presence of God? And again, with all these, I want to say there's an element of truth there. And so at Seven Mile Road, we're committed to the idea that our corporate worship gathering should be an encounter where you experience God. And the scriptures are clear in telling us that that you can anticipate something happens when you come into the presence of God. If our corporate worship is lifeless or bland or boring or dull or routine or monotonous, then we've missed the mark of what we're trying to get here. When you come into the presence of Almighty God, who has created all things, who holds all things together by His Word, who has given His Son to redeem us, you would imagine that that kind of an encounter would leave an effect on you, would would cause you to experience God. And the Scriptures say that, that when you come into this gathering, you can anticipate that you will feel awe and reverence and, and you will fear fear in his presence. You will fear joy, feel gladness, feel sorrow for sin, joy over forgiveness. You'll feel things as you come into God's presence. right? And so we would, we would say the whole sum of your being should be caught up into worship. So we'd say that. When you come to this place, our hope is that in our gathered time, you would experience God in a way that your heart and mind and body and whole being is engaged. That you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And that you would even be able to learn from one another how to better do that. And so some of us would learn from one another how to love the Lord our God with our minds. That we're not here just chasing a feeling, hoping to pull on heartstrings but that we are here in, engaged with our minds, thinking through rich truths, learning these things, chewing on them, meditating on them. But others of you will do well to learn from one another what it looks like to love the Lord your God with all your heart and emotions. This is not dead print on a page that you can go to in some kind of cold, sterile manner. But if this is the gospel and all the riches and all the truths of it, the scriptures anticipate that your whole being is going to be caught up into worship. And so the scriptures will say to you, raise your hands. 1 Timothy 2 will say, I desire everywhere that men would raise their holy hands in prayer. Clap that, that your whole body is going to be engaged in worship. And it will not do to say, that's not my personality. Right? That's, that's not how I roll." The scriptures are going to say, well, roll that way, because your whole body, your whole being, your heart and mind and soul is to be engaged. So absolutely, this time should be a time where you experience God. But having said that, you also need to hear that that's not the primary concern of worship in the scriptures. The main question that the scriptures ask about our worship is not, how did you feel Was it pleasing for you, but was it acceptable to God? The the question that the scriptures are going to ask over and over again about our worship is not what did it do for you, how did it affect you, but was it acceptable to God? Was it pleasing in His sight? Was it appropriate for Him? Was it done in the manner in which He has prescribed it to be done? And you need to know that that is deadly serious in the scriptures, quite literally. In the Old Testament, you have this example of two priests that go into the tabernacle and they offer what the scriptures call strange fire to God. So they worship God however they want to worship Him. And God kills them. He literally, He ends them because worship is really serious. And if you're tempted to go, well, that's the immature, hot-tempered God of the Old Testament the mature Jesus of the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians we read, that Paul says to the church in Corinth, a a local church gathered like this, that some of them were coming to communion, and coming to communion in inappropriate ways, not examining if they were right with God, not examining if they were right with one another, and guess what God does? He kills them. That should be my caveat as you come into church, Be careful how you come here because God could literally kill you by the end of the service, right? It's no small thing. God is serious that when you worship, you do this in ways that are acceptable to Him because the concern of the Scriptures is not how did it make you feel, but how was it acceptable in God's sight, right? So you know the question that Christians will often ask one another, how was church today, right? Or you visit a new church, how was that church And 9 out of 10 times, 99%, we answer it from our experience. If we like the music and if we thought the preacher was entertaining, church was good. And the question is not, what was the experience like for you? But the first question was, was it acceptable to God? The songs that they sang, was it acceptable to God? The way the preacher preached and what he said, was it acceptable to God? So that the people up here are not here to entertain you, but to gather with you to worship God. So will we experience God when we come to worship? Absolutely. But is that the primary soul, ultimate concern or purpose? No. So if it's not evangelism and it's not education and it's not experience, some would say worship as exaltation. And maybe as you've been going through this, in your mind at least, you're thinking this is the one. That what we've come to do is we've come to give to God. We've come to offer to Him, sing to Him, praise Him, lift His name, exalt Him, and serve Him. And again, like all the others, there's an element there. right? We call this a service because that's what we want to do. We want to serve God with our songs and offer to Him all that we can. Offer to Him ourselves. But you need to hear that the scriptures say, God is not served by anyone. Hear what Acts 17 says. Acts 17 says, God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Acts 17.25, hear that again. God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So what that's saying is, you don't come to give God anything that He needs. As though there's this hole in God's heart, and you fill it by the two hours we spend here. As though God needs our worship. God doesn't need anything. The scriptures say, God is not served by our hands, but rather, our life and our breath, that we even come into this building to offer anything to God, is given to us by God. And so when we gather, we certainly receive from Him far more than we give to Him. Right? We don't give Him anything that He needs. He is the only being in all the universe who is completely self-sufficient. Who is complete in Himself. Whom you cannot add anything to or take anything from. And so your worship does not give to God as though He needs it. So, if worship is not primarily, ultimately, solely, if the purpose of our corporate gathering is not evangelism, or education, or exaltation, or experience, we want to ask again, so why are you here? Right? And I hope, as you've heard these, that there's a part of you says, there's a sense in which all of them are true right there is an element in which people who don't know the lord our deep hope is that as you gather here with us things might be done in a sensible way that you might come to know the lord our deep hope is that as you gather here you might be instructed and you might truly learn more about god and know him better our hope and conviction is that as you gather here you will experience the lord and come into his presence and that it will affect you heart mind body and soul Our hope here is that as you come, you will exalt God and serve Him and offer to Him your praises. There's an element in all these things, which is why we want to say they're incomplete by themselves. They're not entirely wrong, it's just they're not entirely right. If we do corporate worship right, if we gather right, then all of those things will happen, but they're not by themselves the purpose of our gathering. So why are we here? Let me read you Psalm 29, verse 1 and 2, as sort of a first step down the path of answering that question. We just want to take step one in trying to answer that question. Here's what Psalm 29, 1 and 2 says. It says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength ascribe to the lord the glory do his name worship the lord in the splendor of his holiness the psalmist would say that the purpose of our corporate worship is to ascribe to god to attribute to god to credit to god glory that the purpose of our gathering is to ascribe to god to credit to god to attribute to god glory <laughs> That word, uh, one pastor, Bob Thune, says that Psalm 29, that word in the Hebrew could just be give to God glory. But it's not give as though God was lacking something, right? So if I say, give me 20 bucks. It's because I don't have 20 bucks and I need it from you. The psalmist is not saying give that way. That's why the translators have translated ascribe. Meaning not you give him something he lacks, but you're giving him the credit that is due to him. You're attributing to him that which is already his. You're crediting God with glory. So that when we gather, we gather to glorify God or magnify God. But you need to be careful about what that means. One pastor has given this helpful illustration. He says, when we magnify God, we do it like a telescope and not a microscope. Here's what that means. When you magnify under a microscope, what happens? You take something infinitely small and you place it under, you look through, and suddenly it appears bigger than it is. That is not what the scriptures mean when it says magnify, glorify God. As though you take God and you make a bigger deal about him than is right or or he deserves. But that's not how a telescope works. How does a telescope work? A telescope looks into the sky and takes something that you cannot possibly see, that looks like a, a pinprick in the sky, but is infinitely massive and huge and large. And and when you look through it, you finally begin to see it for all its brilliance and beauty and glory. What looks like a tiny pinprick, a, a small star in the sky, when you look through the, the telescope and magnify it, you begin to finally see its dimensions for what it really is. You begin to appreciate its awesomeness, its, its light and energy and heat and dimensions. So when we magnify or glorify God here, what we're doing is we're beginning to see Him as He deserves, as He is due. We are ascribing to Him glory. But here's the thing. Even that doesn't fully answer our question. Why are we here? Because here's the thing. You could glorify God everywhere. 1 Corinthians 10.31 will say, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do it to the glory of God. And so what the scriptures have done is it has exploded the idea of glorifying God and worshiping God outside of what happens on a Sunday to all of life. So that the Corinthian letter will say, whatever you do, that when you're eating a sandwich, when you're drinking coffee, when you're mowing the lawn, when you're raking leaves, when you're washing the dishes, when you're watching your kids, all of it is done to the glory of God. And if that's true, we want to ask again, if, if we're to glorify God at all times, why is this corporate gathering necessary? How does this ascribe to God glory in a unique way? Why are we to gather here? What's the purpose? Why are you here? All right. If we're going to answer that, I want us to just review what we said a, a few weeks back. If you remember, we're in this series called Be the Church, and what we're trying to do is talk through what is the church and what does it mean for us to be members of the church. And today we want to say, why is gathering for corporate worship an essential part of what it means to be a member of a church? Why do you have to do this? And to answer that, if you remember, when we started talking about what the church is, we were clear to say the church is not a building, it's not a service, it's not an event, it's not a place you go, it's a people the people of God. And we said that in the New Testament, the second half of our Bibles, we are the people of God that are continuing the patterns of the Old Testament, the first half of our Bible and the people of God. So we said in the Old Testament, when God began, He picked one nation, Israel, called them His people, made them the people of God, and that now in the New Testament, we, the church, are the people of God. And while things are different, things are also gloriously the same. That what we're doing is continuing what God began with the people of God in the Old Testament. And so, perhaps as we consider what their corporate gathering looked like, it would better serve for us to understand what ours is to look like. Hear that again. The idea is if we can get an idea of what their corporate gathering, their worship, their corporate worship was getting at, we might better understand what our corporate worship is getting at. And I need you to keep with me because perhaps God has the opportunity to change how you think about these two hours on a Sunday. All right, I want to show you quickly two scenes of corporate worship with Israel in the Old Testament. First is Exodus 19. If you want to turn there, you can. I'll walk you through it. In Exodus 19, let me give you the background. God has chosen Israel, His people, one nation out of the whole planet, Out of all the peoples on the earth, he's chosen this one nation to be his people. Israel is in slavery in Egypt for some 400 years. And at the end of that time, God redeems, delivers, saves, rescues Israel. He walks them out of Egypt, walks them miraculously through the Red Sea, brings them through the desert, and in Exodus 19, he gathers them at the base of a mountain called Mount Sinai. And he calls for all the people to gather at Mount Sinai, and he tells them that I will come to that mountain. And the instructions are very clear. None of you are to touch the base of that mountain. Not even an animal is to stumble over there, because if you do, you will be killed. I am holy, and you are sinful. So you keep your distance. And as they're standing there at Exodus 19, you begin to see the most terrifying scene you could imagine. Because God literally touches down at the the top of that mountain. And his glory is there so that it becomes like this thick darkness that covers the sky. And smoke begins to billow and the trumpet blare grows louder and louder. And God's voice begins to boom so that it says the mountains tremble and the people are afraid. The people literally shout out to Moses, who's their leader, and they say, Tell God to stop talking. Let him talk to you. You come talk to us. We cannot bear to hear him anymore. And God continues to talk. His presence is there. And then in Exodus 20, the very next chapter, God initiates what's called a covenant. He touches down on this mountain to bring this people into covenant with him. And in chapter 20, you find what you probably know as the Ten Commandments, which are the opening words to this covenant. And in chapter 21 and 22 and 23, God is going to continue to lay out the stipulations of this covenant so that when you get to chapter 24, this covenant is going to be confirmed. It's going to be ratified. It's sort of like the signature, the the handshake that seals the deal. In chapter 24, what happens is Moses stands before the people and he says, you've heard the covenant. You've heard all the terms. What do you say? And the people shout back, Everything God has said, we will do. And Moses said, you be sure. Be very, be very careful. In fact, what Moses does is he takes some animal blood and he literally sprinkles it on all the people as to say, this shed blood is a sign of what will be required if you do not keep the covenant. Even as this blood was shed on you, so your blood will be shed if you don't keep this covenant. And the people shout back, Everything God has said, we will do. And there, the covenant is confirmed. And it's actually closed with this meal. What happens is the elders of Israel and Moses and Aaron go to the top of the mountain, and they, it says they saw God, saw his feet, and they had a meal there with God. And so this covenant is confirmed with the shedding of this blood and this meal. It, this word covenant, let me just give you two seconds of background, because it's an outdated word for us, so we don't really get it. In that day, in that culture, a covenant was this relationship that these two kingdoms would come into. So you'd have this great strong king and you'd have this lesser weak puny king and they would come into a relationship. And the great king would promise his protection and blessings and favor and in return the subject would promise their loyalty and obedience. And they'd seal this covenant with blood and the great king would say, If you betray me... If you do not keep your vows that we are making this day, your blood will be shed. And the lesser would say, we agree. You just keep protecting us. You keep putting favor on us. You keep blessing us. We'll keep our end. And the two would come into covenant. The two would make vows to one another. The two would come into relationship. So in Exodus 19 through 24, what what happens is, unlike any other people on the planet, God comes into covenant with Israel. He comes into a relationship with, him, with them that he does not have with anyone else on the planet. They are his people. He is their God. He has obligations to them. They have obligations to him. They're sealed. Okay, here's the question. That happens, but then time passes. So one generation dies, another generation dies, and now you've got 10, 20, 30 years later a group of people who have never been at Mount Sinai. They've never seen the smoke. They never watched the mountain tremble. They never heard God's voice. They didn't feel the blood shed on them. They weren't there for any of it. So how is God going to communicate to this people the covenant? How is he going to remind them that there's a special relationship between them and him, that there's obligations that they have towards one another, that there's vows made between each other? How is he going to communicate that to them? And God accomplishes this by instituting what's called covenant renewals. He calls together certain gatherings, assembled corporate worships, where he will renew the covenant with them. You need to hear this. It's not because the covenant was going to expire and so he needs to renew this as like a license that's going to go away and so you need to renew it. It's it's more like how food replenishes your body or how marriage, in marriage, sex renews the covenant. Let me go on a two-second tangent. For you married couples... When you got married on that day, you stood before a great many people and you were brought into covenant and you consummated that marriage and you entered into covenant. The scriptures say every time you come together in physical intimacy, what the marriage bed does is renew that covenant. So you don't have to waste money on a fancy vow renewal service. Just sleep together. And as you sleep together... You are being renewed in covenant. Husbands, I am doing you a favor, right? Because the next time you're alone with your bride, you just tell her, sweetheart, I think it's time to renew the covenant. And she cannot say no, it's biblical, right? That's the idea. God is renewing covenant. I'm going to get in trouble for that one. God is renewing covenant with Israel. And every time he comes into this covenant ceremony, their vows are being renewed. So that even as a husband and wife, every time they come together, what they're saying to each other is, I vow to take you as my husband and you as my wife. For richer and poorer, till death do us part, all of that is being renewed every time. And so God institutes these gatherings in which this covenant is renewed. Where the two are coming together, their vows are being renewed, their obligations to one another, their dedication to one another is being renewed in these covenant renewals. And every time there's a certain sort of pattern that happens. I won't go into it, but in Leviticus 9, it tells us that there's a set way in which the covenant was renewed. So first, for example, I'll go through this quickly. You'd have a sin offering every time. Because as the people came into God's presence, they needed to be cleansed of their sin. And so an offering was offered. And then you'd have a burnt offering. And the entire animal was consumed by a fire as a symbol of the people being consecrated. And they were being entirely devoted to God. And then you had a peace offering. Having been cleansed, having been consecrated, they could now commune with God through the peace offering. They could have a meal with God. And they did this over and over and over and over again. They'd be renewed in covenant as they were cleansed of their sin, as they were consecrated to God, and as they communed with Him through a meal. Okay. What does all of that have to do with why we're here? Stick with me. We're now in the New Testament. We're in the second half of our Bibles. In the New Testament, God sends Jesus Christ, His Son, into the world. And Jesus is both fully God and fully man, and he's born among the covenant people. He's born out of Israel. Except he keeps the covenant perfectly. He obeys every obligation in the covenant. Where Israel's history is marked with breaking their vows like an unfaithful spouse, Jesus faithfully obeys the covenant, keeps it to its every letter and law. And then at the end of his life, At 33 years, he is taken and he's crucified. And he doesn't just die randomly. He dies for the sake of covenant breakers. He dies because you and I failed to keep our obligations to the covenant because we broke God's law. And remember, the blood was sprinkled. So in in Exodus 24, the blood is sprinkled, saying, if the covenant is not kept, blood must be shed. And Jesus dies to shed the blood that should have come from your veins where God should have required that your blood be sprinkled for failure to keep the covenant, Jesus dies in our place, and His blood is sprinkled and shed. And as it is, a new covenant is established. A new covenant. A new covenant is initiated as His body is broken and His blood is sprinkled and shed. We come into a new covenant. So that now there is a new covenant people of God. And that's called the church. That's what we are. That unlike any other people on the planet, God has come into a unique relationship with you, a covenant relationship with you, with certain obligations and vows on both ends. He promises to be your God, forgive your sins, give you eternal life. You in turn promise to be loyal to Jesus, obey His commands, follow Him forever. And the two are brought into covenant. Only it's a radically better covenant. It's better. It's better in every way. Look at Hebrews 12, the passage that Kurt read for us, page 1009. Hebrews 12, we're looking at verse 18 to 24. We are now the new covenant people of God, and it's better in every way. Let me read you this passage. Hear it with me. Keep in mind Israel standing before Mount Sinai and now listen to what God says to you, the new covenant people. He says, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, you haven't come to that. You didn't come to Mount Mount Sinai. You didn't come to the smoke. You didn't come to the great voice. You didn't come to Moses. But watch what you came to. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Hebrews is saying, you've come to a better covenant. And that means it's better in every way. For one, you've come to a better mountain. Think of that. You've come to a better mountain. We don't stream into Mount Sinai. When you became a Christian, you didn't buy a ticket and head to Egypt so that you could come to the base of Mount Sinai and establish covenant with God. Because there's a better mountain now. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is when we gather here, we are in Mount Zion in heavenly Jerusalem. So that you are literally at two places at once right now. Paul will write to the Ephesians and say, the church at Ephesus, so you're here. But then in chapter 2 he'll say, you are right now seated in heavenly places. So the idea is that when we have our call to worship, there's literally an airlift into heavenly Jerusalem and we stand there together at Mount Zion in heavenly Jerusalem in the presence of God. If you could imagine it, when we begin our service with our call to worship, these roofs are torn open, these ceilings are ripped apart, and you are lifted into Mount Zion in heavenly Jerusalem so that our worship takes place in Philadelphia and in heaven. And this isn't a truth that will one day be but that it's a reality now that our corporate worship occurs in heaven, in the place where God is. Let me read you a quote by a a pastor named Doug Wilson because he says it well. He says, What happens when a small group of saints gather in a clapboard community church somewhere out in the sticks? He says, At their call to worship, they ascend to the city of God, to heavenly Jerusalem. Think of that. That might impact the way that you come into the service. Because what if you're not just standing here, but what if you're standing at a better mountain, Mount Zion in heavenly Jerusalem? And there on that better mountain, in this better covenant, there's a better assembly. Look again at verse 22 and 23. But you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels, in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and then skipping on, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The idea is that when you gather there, you gather with all the saints and with innumerable angels that are caught up in worship to God. Think of that. That when we gather here, local church, small c., You are gathered at the same time in heaven with the church, capital C, of all saints of all time who have ever believed and will believe in the Lord. And you stand there on that better mountain with that better assembly worshiping God. And innumerable angels are adding their chorus to the songs that we sing so that our worship is in heaven with the assembly of God's people. Assembly, Ecclesia, the gathering, the church of the firstborn. All the spirits who are made righteous. All of God's people stand with us every time we gather. And in that better covenant, on that better mountain, with that better assembly, you come to a better mediator. Look at verse 24. And we come to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In the old covenant, what happened? They come to Mount Sinai and Moses, remember they say, don't let God talk to us anymore. Let him talk to you, you talk to us. Moses has to stand as a mediator between the two. Moses has to sprinkle this blood that is going to scream out for justice should the covenant be disobeyed. Except the problem is, Moses is as much a sinner as they are. So that this one who tries to stand between God and the people, he will literally be killed for his sins and not even allowed to go past the mountain. He's not even allowed to enter the promised land because he's not the mediator we need. But in the new covenant, at that better mountain, with that better assembly, you come to a better mediator. You come to Jesus, the God-man who is perfect and fully God and fully man and represents us well to God and mediates God well to us and he stands as the perfect bridge between us and whose sprinkled blood speaks a better word. Right? When the blood was shed in Exodus 24, it cries out for justice. Just like the blood of Abel, it says here. If you remember in Genesis 3 or 4, there's these two brothers, Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel, and God says, his blood is crying out to me. And what's it crying out for? Justice. But Jesus' blood speaks a better word. Because what Jesus' blood says to the Father is, justice has already been poured out to me, so I cry out mercy for everyone on whom this blood is shed. Think of that. In the old covenant, this blood fell on you and it was a sign of the justice and judgment that was going to be required. In the new covenant, Jesus' blood is sprinkled on you and it cries out, Mercy! on everyone to whom it falls. It's a better covenant with a better mediator and a better mountain and a better assembly. So why are we here? We're here because we are the covenant people of God we are being brought to a better mountain, and every time we gather, we're being renewed in covenant. We're being renewed. Every time you gather here, you and God are coming together to that mountain. And you and God are being renewed in your vows to one another. You and God are being renewed in your obligations to each other. You and God are being renewed in that relationship that you have with God. And it's not just you, it's us. We are being renewed in covenant. And every time we come together, we even pattern our worship to reflect covenant renewal. Right? So in the beginning, in the Old Testament for covenant renewal, you had cleansing. They offered the sin offering. Which is why at the beginning of our service, we have our call to worship. Think through that. The next time you come to the call to worship, imagine that what is being happening, what's happening is that as we open the service, you are being transported to heavenly Jerusalem to stand with the saints that you see and saints you do not see and angels innumerable to the naked eye and you are worshiping the Lord to the glory of God. And then we don't have a sin offering anymore because Jesus is our offering. His blood has spoken a better word. But what we do is Sibi leads us through confession so that we too might be cleansed. And in the Old Covenant, you had the burnt offering to consecrate the people. And so as the people obeyed the Mosaic Law, they were consecrated to God. In the New Covenant, we come to Christ in our union with Him and to His Word. And as the Word is being read and preached... And as we align ourselves to it, we are being consecrated to God. So that you are now offering yourselves wholly devoted to Him. And having been cleansed and having been consecrated, we come in a few moments to the highest point of this covenant renewal. We get to commune with God. We get to eat with Him. Just like in Exodus 24, after the blood was shed, they ate with God. And so God invites you to a meal. And every time you're being renewed in covenant. Right? We said marriage and and the marriage bed. In the same way for our faith, God has given us baptism and communion. So we enter into covenant through baptism. And we renew our covenant through communion. So that every time you come to this table, you're being renewed in your covenant relationship with God. And every week, and week after week, God is gathering his covenant people to renew them in the covenant. Only it's a far better covenant. So we come to a better mountain, with a better assembly and a better mediator who's given us a better sacrifice with better blood that speaks a better word that gives us better access to our God. All right, if all of that is true, let me give you three quick takeaways about how you might take this into your life and apply it, how we might not just be hearers of the word but doers of what it says. One, come to corporate worship. If all of that is true... Come to church. Don't let church be what happens if all the stars align right and it fits into your Sunday morning. You have the opportunity to come to heavenly Jerusalem with the saints of God to be renewed, cleansed, and consecrated and commune with God. So come to church. No wonder Hebrews will say, after it reflects on these truths, Hebrews 10:25. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love, to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you hear that? He says, don't neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but you are to come, come to worship And again, I'm not saying, throughout this whole series we've been saying, I'm not saying it has to be here, but it has to be somewhere. And you plug in deeply to a local church where you become a member and you come. You come so that you can be renewed in covenant. And as you come, another word of application for you, come eager and come to engage. Come eager and come to engage. If all of this is true, then you don't stumble into worship You don't come into here casually or thoughtlessly. You greet one another because you are coming together as the covenant people of God. And as you come here, you come prepared to be renewed in covenant with Him. Your souls ought to be prepared. If you're going to come here, one simple, practical application. Come on time. Our service starts at 11 o'clock. If you stumble in by the third song or right before the sermon, you've missed the pattern and the process by which we are being lifted to God and by which we are being renewed. Remember, this is not pregame warm-up to get to the sermon. Every part is part of covenant renewal. So the call to worship reminds us of heavenly Jerusalem and the mountain to which we've gathered. And the confession cleanses us of our sins And the word, both the reading and the preaching of it, consecrates us to God so that we can come to communion and fellowship with God. You want to be in all of that. I don't say that legalistically. So the mom that's trying to wrangle three kids together, you don't have to feel like next week, if you're late, all of us are going to judge you. That's not what I'm saying. I would never want any of you to hear, I'm going to be late, so I might as well not come. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, be thoughtful, if that means get to bed a little earlier on Saturday, get to bed a little earlier on Saturday. Lead your homes here. Dads, how are you doing at that? How are you doing at leading your family and making sure that everybody is ready to come into God's presence so that we might be renewed in covenant with Him? So come. And, and as you come, come engaged. Come engaged. If you sit through all of this but you're not engaged... What's the point? What good is a husband standing at the altar with his wife and his body's there but his mind is somewhere else? You'd say, that's pathetic. That doesn't, it doesn't do anything. And so you're to engage. You don't just hear someone offer silence for confession and now allow you to think about your fantasy lineup. You, you confess your sins. Because in this time, you are offered the opportunity to be cleansed so that you can move to the next part of the service and you can engage So that when confession is offered to you, you confess and you say to the Lord, God, I have broken your covenant and my blood should be sprinkled and shed. But Jesus' blood was shed for me. Would you cleanse me again so that I might participate in this service cleansed by Christ? I'm not asking you to come righteous. I'm asking you to come and receive his righteousness so that you can be cleansed. And and when the word is being read, even through the reading of the scripture, you're not waiting just to hear the word when it's preached, but even as it's read, this is God's word to you, so that as you receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, you're being consecrated to the Lord. And oh, I would remind you to come to communion engaged, partly because God promises to judge those who would come unworthily. So you come, having examined your relationship with God, having examined your relationship with one another. And if you're right with God and with his people, you come. Again, you're not bringing righteousness to the table. You're not bringing a perfect week. But what you are is saying, I'm not playing games here. I'm not playing religion. I've received your forgiveness. I'm right with you. I'm right with one another. And so I come. Come prayerful, come engaged, come eager because God is actually doing something in this gathering. And I'll give you one last. Come to Jesus when you're here. Come to Jesus. That's simple. I just want to read you a litany of questions and you, you think to yourself, who is the answer to all of that? Who initiated this better covenant? Who sealed it with his broken body and his sprinkled blood shed for us? Who is the better sacrifice offered for our sake? Who made us the people of God and brought us into this special relationship with God? Who led us to this better mountain? Who created this better assembly? Who is the better mediator? Who has given us better access? Whose blood speaks a better word? Who is it that cleanses us and consecrates us and communes with us? Do you see why Jesus is the center of everything we do here? Why all our gathered worship is about Him and to Him and for Him and in Him and with Him? Because all of this is to move us to Jesus. So if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you can come to him today. And he is willing to seal you with covenant relationship and bring you into the covenant community. That rather than your blood needing to be shed, rather than judgment falling on you, he has taken your place. And you could be safe in him with the covenant people of God. And this service might mean something to you. And if you're a Christian, come to Jesus. Because every part and every movement and every moment of our service, of our corporate worship, is about Jesus. Jesus has initiated a better covenant. He's made us his covenant people. He gathers us every week to cleanse us and consecrate us and commune with us and to renew covenant with us. That is why we're here. Let's pray.